Our children are dismissed through that door, ages four through, I think, third grade, for parents who like the things of the Lord put on their level. Our text this morning, beloved, is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. There's an outline that will immensely help you follow along in the bulletin. You might want to turn there right now. And I need to ask for your rapt attention at this point. This is a very challenging message. For one thing, we've got young ones in our midst who aren't thinking about marriage much. We've got some of you who were married and divorced, were married and widowed, who have no idea if you're going to be married again. Some of you are in very painful marriages. And this kind of message can just open the womb. You, 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 you look and you say, oh, uh, a sermon on marriage, and you, you just want to do this, don't you? I'm aware of that. I'm aware of that. There's nothing in my heart that wants to inflict any pain on any of you. Here's my confidence. That because this text follows seven verses in 1 Peter 3, addressing husbands and wives. Actually, the, the husbands are so stupid. We, one verse is, is all we can handle. We get one verse, the wives get six. No. What happens in verse 8 is that Peter immediately moves from addressing husbands and wives in the first seven verses, and then he says, and here's our text, finally, all of you, in other words, there are principles in this text that will make for a healthy marriage, and there are principles that I'm going to go over that make for healthy relationships. Maybe your roommate, maybe friends at work, other friends in the church. So bear with me. I'm going to principally address married couples. But I believe there are principles that will help all of us at some relational level. That's why this is challenging. So here's our text. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. I don't think there's anything sadder in this life than seeing a couple start a marriage with joy, happiness, love, effusive affection, and seeing that relationship devolve into a place of bitter antagonism. I'm not sure there's anything sadder than that. I have a relation, I've married many people in my 30 years of ministry and some of them have ended this way. I can't escape a crushing in my heart that people who began as best friends end up sometimes as bitterest enemies. And 
There are a lot of things, no doubt, that lead to the dissolution of a marriage. Lots. But you can always be sure what did not happen when relationships crash and burn. What didn't happen? Humility. We can conquer a lot of sin and differences with the grace of humility. That's the hope. Whether it's marriage, your relationship with your kids, brothers and sisters, with your mom and dad, we can do an awful lot with the grace of humility. That's why this message is important and it needs to be preached. How do you guard your marriage, your relationships with humility and save them from pride? How do you do that? Let me tease out seven principles that I believe are implicit in the text. First principle, and you have to act on these principles. Number one, without humility, you will deeply wound each other. When I start premarriage counseling, I start through a bevy of questions. One of the first questions I ask after, why do you want to marry this person, is I, uh, it's actually not a question. I just look at the couple, and you know, they're all smiling and happy, and I say, guess what? Without humility, you're going to kill each other. And they kind of chuckle, and I'm like, no, I mean it. I mean it. Without humility, pride will gobble up these beautiful graces that ultimately describe Jesus in verse 8. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. That is Jesus. And these are the attributes that, are, that, that the Spirit of God is longing to create in us. Pride gobbles these up. So to use Jesus' image from Matthew 7, if you're not seeing and dealing with your own logs, your relationships are on a trajectory to destruct. So it begs this question. I also ask young couples this question. What kind of sinner do you want to marry? (laughs) What kind of sinner do you want to be in your friendships? See, there's only two kinds of sinners in the world. Those that know they're big sinners and those that don't know they're big sinners. There's only two kinds. Those who know they're big sinners and those who don't know they're big sinners. Do you want to be married to a person that does not know they're a big sinner? Answer? No, because their sin will inevitably destroy the relationship. Now, among those who know they're big sinners are those who are doing something about it, and not doing anything about it. Do you want to be married to a person who knows they're a big sinner, but is doing nothing about it? Do you want to be married to that kind of person? No, because, same reason, their sin inevitably will cause the relationship to be all about them, and that's not a relationship. Among those who know they're a big sinner and doing something about it, there are also two kinds. Are you you tracking with me here? There are those who know they're a big sinner and they're using grace, as the only remedy for their sin versus those who are using law to remedy their sin. What do I mean? I mean that some people are wired to say, okay, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, and what we need is we need to do the right thing. We need to buck up. You need to be different. You need to keep the rules. I need to keep the rules. It's all about doing the right thing. That will create a relationship where everyone is walking on eggshells. 
You want to use the gospel of Jesus Christ and his grace and love as the only solution to your sin. And finally, one more distinction among those who know they're big sinners or doing something about it and are using the grace of the gospel as the solution are those who are using the gospel fundamentally for themselves or fundamentally so they can love the other person with Christ-centered, other-centeredness. And I make that distinction because I see that in me. I love the gospel. I love grace. But the gospel tends to come to my heart and just like, okay, this is all about me. No, it really isn't grace until it changes the way I relate to my spouse and to my fellow man. And the reason I ask the question, beloved, is, is, is this, this is to save you and your relationships from a potentially disillusioning discovery, and that is you married a bigger sinner than you thought. And you're a bigger sinner than you knew. And without that reality, the relationship is on very, very frail footing. So what kind of sinner do you want to be? You want to be a sinner that knows they're a big sinner and is running to Jesus as the only person who can do something about it. And what will Jesus produce? He'll produce unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tenderheartedness, not repaying evil for evil. That's what he'll produce. Second principle, to save your marriage from pride and guard it with humility. You need the third person in your marriage. We tend to see our spouse as that person who's going to be our ticket out of the pain of living in a fallen world. And you were born longing to be esteemed, longing for importance. Boy meets girl, and there's a very powerful attraction there that says, oh yeah, you're going to be, well, you're going to be what the council sang about in 1967. Sorry, dating myself. But they had a smash hit called The Rain in the Park and other things, the cowsills. And the refrain in it was this. And I knew, I knew, I knew, I knew she could make me happy, happy, happy. Now on the surface of it, that sounds very flattering. But that is a very self-serving view of love, isn't it? You exist to make me happy. And the reality is, there's no one in the world who can meet that goal. No one in the world who can make you happy but Jesus. And we tend to get in relationships thinking, here's my savior, this other person. And then hurt, disappointment, sin enters into the relationship. And human beings do not stay very long in a, in a place of hurt. What happens is they withdraw and they throw up walls of self-protection around their hearts. And most people, many of you, if you're married, you spend the rest of your lives bumping off of each other's walls of self-protection. That is not a happy place to live, and you know it. And that is not a marriage that brings glory to the God who is intimate with his precious children. What you need is the real Savior, Jesus. And when Andy read earlier from Genesis 2 that he brought her to the man, we have every reason to believe that was a pre-incarnate theophany of Jesus walking Eve down the aisle to Adam. He brought Eve to Adam to solve what problem? His loneliness. It is not good for the man to be alone. Here's this uniquely crafted companion, perfectly suited for Adam. And you have to believe your spouse is that. A, a gift from Jesus given to you for your good. And Jesus' presence at the first wedding shows you what? 
He wants that relationship lived by his precepts and with his presence. And otherwise, selfish intention will gobble up all that you want in your relationship. Third principle, I'm going to make it a question versus a a principle because I got some good feedback from one of the home groups as they looked at these seven principles last Sunday. It's a question. Am I the greatest threat to the welfare of my marriage and if left to myself will ruin it? Some of you are in abusive, awful relationships and your spouse never even dreams to ask that question. But as a rule, let's look at this. When I wake up in the morning, my prayer should be what regarding my marriage? Lord, save my marriage from me. (laughs) I'm the greatest threat to the welfare of my marriage. If left to myself, my demandingness, my pettiness, my pride, my logs, that will ruin my marriage. When conflict arises, why shouldn't I assume that my pride is the biggest contributor to that conflict? And so if I want a healthy marriage, you want healthy relationship with your friends, daily repenting of the temptation to be a vacuum of self-concern is the way to freedom. And that will foster an atmosphere where you essentially you're saying to your spouse, you are free to fail. You do not have to be perfect to stay in this relationship. I'm going to love you tomorrow if you fail me today. Just like Jesus is never giving up on you tomorrow when you failed him today. Can I put it another way? Your marriage was never built for selfishness. And selfishness left unalone is like letting a pound of air out of your tires once a week. Just a pound. But after 35 weeks, the tire is flat. Some of our marriages are flat because you're not dealing with your own selfishness. Fourth principle. Your marriage only works when sin is put to death. But here's an irony. Vitality in our relationships comes from death. Putting sin to death. Dave Harvey, I think he pastored over in Gaithersburg at the Sovereign Grace Church in Gaithersburg, wrote a book on marriage called When Sinners Say I Do. It's a good title. And he tweaks the saying of a famous theologian named Thomas Watson, wonderful theologian we should all be familiar with. Thomas Watson wrote this, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Right? You'll never know the sweetness of the love of Christ till your own sin is bitter in your own heart's mouth, right? He tweaked that for marriage, and he said this, when sin becomes bitter, marriage becomes sweet. Your sin, not your spouse's sin. And I know we're wired to, we're, we're wired to find our spouse's sin far more aggravating than our own. What are some of the sins in view that are hurting our relationships that sort of come out of this text? Here's a few, just to name a few. Being judgmental, critical, defensive, impatient, scornful, vengeful, harsh, unsympathetic, indifferent, cold, inflexible, unloving, non-communicative, just to name a few. 
My point is, you are either killing these in your soul or they are killing your marriage or your relationships. So when we should really change the way we do weddings because when we come to the, the altar, right, what we need are we need swords, we need cannons, we need guns because a couple is entering into warfare when they get married. Warfare. It's war. And if you're not first, first dealing with your own sin, you will wage war on your spouse and invariably you'll make them pay. What a sad state of affairs to live in, beloved. Oh, my goodness. Fifth principle. You're going to be like, how did this guy do this? How to do relationships in 25 minutes? You've got to be kidding. Weakness is the greatest gift you have to bring to your marriage. So back to, the, back to my counseling office working with engaged couples. I'll ask, what is your greatest fear entering this relationship. What do I want them to say? Me. My sin. That's my greatest fear. And then I'll ask, what's the greatest strength you bring to the relationship? You know, is it your hard work? I'm a good saver. I'm a strong guy. I I'm, I'm, I'm love the Bible. I'm really moral. What, what's your greatest strength? I hope by now you see what the answer is going to be. Your greatest strength is your weakness. You, you don't have what it takes in yourself, to pull off marriage. It's far too difficult. You don't have it. I don't have it. And so you go in brokenness to Jesus to get what he can abundantly supply, which is grace. You want to do your relationships well? Be a grace getter. And see, Jesus' grace to you is, in spite of your unfaithfulness to Jesus, he remains faithful to you. Pursue the heart of Jesus, beloved. Pursue his grace, his mercy, and you will become ravishingly like him, and you'll act like him. That's why I have Ephesians 4.32 in the outline. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other as, as Christ has forgiven you. Didn't Jesus say, those who are forgiven much, love much. You say, there's not a lot of love in my marriage. Okay, start with how much you need to be forgiven and see what Jesus produces in that. Grace tends to breathe fresh air into relationships. And the principle is you can't give away what you don't have. If your relationship needs grace, friendships, roommates, you need to get that from Jesus. And will that make you a safe person to live with? You know, I, one day, maybe, I'm going to stand with my daughter at a marriage ceremony, and I'm going to take her hand, and I'm going to put it into the hand of another man. That is the, I suspect dads who've given your daughters away, that is the longest distance ever traveled in the universe to put your precious daughter's hand into the hand of another man. Now, some of you have done that. Dad, Mom, don't you want her to be entrusted into the care of a man who is safe? And what is the only power in the universe to make his heart safe for her? To be filled with the love of Jesus. So if you want to marry my daughter, you have to prove to me your heart is desperate for Jesus and you're seeking to be filled with the love of Jesus. All right. We got that out there. (laughs) 
And can I state the obvious? If, if only one person in the relationship, whether it's a friendship or a marriage, only one of you is serious about being humble, it isn't going to work. And men, since I'm a man, I'll just challenge you. Let's be pace setters. The, the, I'm a pastor. I know these are the kind of sermons men hate. Because we stink at this. We're not good at this. I'm not good at this. Men, be pace setters. As a rule, people love to follow leaders who are dependent upon God's grace. So what does humility say, beloved? I need to change. Humility pleads, pleads, help me be more like Christ. Pride pouts, you need to do most of the changing. So just honestly ask yourself, in your relationships or your marriage, if your fundamental attitude is, my spouse needs to do most of the changing, let me encourage you to flip that around for a month and try it differently. Just try it differently. So when a a couple stands at the altar and says, I do, apart from the natural reasons of attraction... And friendship, I think it's best to marry your best friend. Here's what you're saying. You're saying, of all the sinners in the world, I'm allowing you into my junk to make me more like Jesus. Of all the sinners in the world, I'm going to trust that as Jesus has been tender, compassionate, kind, and gentle with you in your junk, you in kind will be the same with me and me with you. So marriage is this wonderful, sanctifying institution, if you think of it that way. Obviously, it takes trust, it takes gentleness, and the belief that my wife has my best interests at heart, principally why, and me towards her, because we've experienced the ravishingly heart-gripping interest of Jesus in our welfare, dying for our sins. Sixth principle, you will never be happily married to another person until you're first happily married to Jesus. When I pray for my daughter, she's, my two sons are married, well, one is going through a divorce, and uh, the other's married, and, but my daughter's single, and she, uh, I think she'd like to be married, so how do I pray for her? How do I pray for her? I say, Lord, let Laura be content and joyful being happily married to you, the true lover of her soul. Which is really, isn't that the greatest gift she has to give, if the Lord should bring a godly man into her life, isn't that the greatest gift Laura has to give some man? She's in love with Jesus. Correspondingly, and Laura knows this, she wants to marry someone who is in love with Jesus. Why is this an important principle? Because any marriage, if it's going to be any close relationship, is marked by intimacy, the opening of hearts, the sharing of dreams, goals, desires, fears, all these kinds of things. And we have a word for that. It's called being vulnerable. And we have a word for the, the, um, the, the danger of vulnerability is what? It takes a risk. What if you reject me for finding out what I really am? And when you get married, you find out what they really are. For the most part, right? Marriage is a mirror into which we see, oh my goodness, I'm not 
the guy I thought I was cracked up to be. <laughs> There's a, an amazing book on marriage uh, by Mike Mason called The Mystery of Marriage. Anybody heard of it? Mike Marriage? He has this line in there on intimacy where he says, it's not intimacy itself that people um, disdain. They crave intimacy. He says it's the moral condemnation that comes with intimacy as we struggle so pitifully to have our own way. Yeah, that's right. All right, that's a little sidebar. I didn't plan to say that, but that's a really helpful quote. You'll never be happily married to anyone until you're first happily married to Jesus. So intimacy makes you vulnerable and run to Jesus. Find your security in the heart of Jesus. And then you won't wake up every day demanding that your spouse or your close friend be the person who meets all your needs for love and affection. See, I ought to be able to wake up next to Janice and say, good morning, I love you, but I don't need you. Meaning this, I'm not going to place on you, my wife, the burden of making me feel completely whole as a human being. That burden is on whom? Jesus. She needs to be free from that burden. I don't want to be put on a pedestal where Janice wakes up in the morning and says, good morning, if you don't be everything I want as a husband, my world is going to be crushed to pieces. I don't want that burden. I'm not going to put that burden on her. Do you see? Jesus can handle that burden. You're first happily married to Jesus, and then you're secure to not make unrealistic demands of your spouse. Now you know what love is. It's not an emotion. It is a conviction. It is a conviction to give your best to your spouse if even in the face of their worst. Or your friends, your roommates, your kids. Love is in the pattern of Jesus dying on the cross. We are crucifying him and he is saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In that pattern, love is a commitment to give your best to the other if even in the face of their worst. And it works, beloved. Look, his cross saved you. That same power is available to save our relationships. Last principle. Only Christ's love can deliver you from self-love. The only threat to the welfare of your marriage is your love of yourself, so to speak. And when you... And when you run to Jesus in desperation, you run to the heart of Jesus, you read his word, you pray, you become a worshiper, you ask God to give you a greater passion for his glory than for your own, something happens in you. A power is created, a grace is given that will overcome your self-love. Paul Tripp, many of you know the name Paul Tripp, has written a book on marriage called What Were You Expecting? Isn't that great? (laughs) And in that, and I've got the quote for you in the bulletin because I want you to have time to reflect on this and read this and digest this because what he writes is true. It is self-love that hates difference. It is self-love that makes you impatient. It's self-love that makes you want your own way. It is self-love that convinces you that your way is the right way. 
It's self-love that makes winning more attractive than unity. Love celebrates the grace of change. It operates in the middle of difficulty of difference. Love prizes unity, is willing to make sacrifices to achieve it. Love turns difference into an opportunity to experience a deeper and fuller unity. Love isn't impatient and doesn't walk away. Love perseveres. Love stays active until what God has planned becomes your actual experience. Love listens, works, and waits. Unity happens when love intersects with difference. So the final question I'll ask just to finish the sermon is this. How would you know the love of Jesus was controlling your heart, producing the possibility to bring these graces to pass? How would you know? I think there are some practical markers, and I've actually written them out for you in the outline so that you can look at them, study them, reflect on them later. But it's just reasoning from what Jesus has done to what his grace can empower you to do. For example, because he suffered in my place, I will resist my idols and selfishness so they don't hurt you. Thinking of how your sin caused Jesus to suffer, parlay that into, I don't want my selfishness to bring suffering to my kids, my spouse, my friends, my relationships. Because Jesus has forgiven me all my sins, I will approach conflict with an open heart, believing I could be wrong here. Some of you approach conflict convinced you're always in the right. You're wrong. The sooner you acknowledge that, the better. Because Jesus died to purchase me, to give me God's immeasurable blessings, I will seek the beauty of repentance, attacking pride in its way of getting the better. I'm really going to take seriously daily warfare against my pride in light of the immeasurable blessings God has purchased for me. Because Jesus has met all the demands of the law of God for me, I will not expect perfection and demand, uh, demand from you that you be some perfect person. I'm not going to do that. God doesn't do that with me. Because of the gospel. Because Jesus' word is sweet to my soul, I will work hard and carefully, watch how I speak, growing in sensitivity to the impact of my words. Right? Go from the word of God is sweet, it's important, it's powerful, it's a balm to my soul. Therefore, I want to be very careful how my words are landing in my relationships. And because Jesus delivered me from the power of Satan and the power of indwelling sin, I will seek to bring my heart daily under the control of the spirit of Jesus so that our relationship can flourish by the power of his cross. When you struggle, beloved, for one another, you picture the way Jesus loves us. And as you seek humility in your relationships, you'll find that you will have a good relationship, but that will not be the prize. The prize, ultimately, will be Jesus. You'll find Jesus greater than the best marriage doing all of this could ever give you. So I'm going to close quoting from the song you sung a little bit earlier. The, the, the image is profound. It's from the sands of time are sinking, the fourth verse. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. 
I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand, the lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. When you believe that, it will transform your relationships. Let's pray. Lord, where there's perhaps in this room now frustration, open wounds, doubt, fear, hurt, run to it, Jesus, with your spirit. Be a balm, be a help, be an encouragement. Heal with your love. Where there's resistance to change, bring the persuasive presence of your spirit to give courage where there's good fighting in relationships against one another's sin, good fighting arm to arm for the same cause, give perseverance and grace. What we long for is that the glory of Jesus be reflected in our relationships. That the wonder, the power, the mercy, the grace of the cross transform us from selfish, prideful people into humble, other-centered people. It can be done. There is a power on this earth. We give you praise and glory and thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen.